Section five of Wings and the Child by E. Nesbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five of Taking Root. When the history of our time comes to be written, it may be that the historian, remarking our many faults and weaknesses, and seeking to find a reason for them, speculating on our civilization as we now speculate on the civilizations of Rome and Egypt, will come to see that the poor blossoms of civic virtue which we put forth owe their meagreness and deformity to the fact that our lives are no longer permitted to take root in material possessions. Material possessions indeed we have, too much of them and too many of them, but they are rather a dust that overlays the leaves of life than a soil in which the roots of life can grow. A certain solidness of character, a certain quiet force and confidence, grow up naturally in the man who lives all his life in one house, grows all the flowers of his life in one garden. To plant a tree, and know that if you live and tend it, you will gather fruit from it, that if you set out a thorn-hedge, it will be a fine thing when your little son has grown to be a man, these are pleasures which none but the very rich can now know. And the rich who might enjoy these pleasures prefer to run about the country in motor-cars. That is why, for ordinary people, the word neighbour is ceasing to have any meaning. The man who occupies the villa partially detached from your own is not your neighbour. He only moved in a month or so ago, and you yourself will probably not be there next year. A house now is a thing to live in, not to love, and a neighbour a person to criticise, but not to befriend. When people's lives were rooted in their houses and their gardens, they were also rooted in their other possessions, and these possessions were thoughtfully chosen and carefully tended. You bought furniture to live with, and for your children to live with after you. You became familiar with it, it was adorned with memories, brightened with hopes, it, like your house and your garden, assumed then a warm friendliness of intimate individuality. In those days, if you wanted to be smart, you bought a new carpet and curtains. Now you refurnish the drawing-room. If you have to move house, as you often do, it seems cheaper to sell most of your furniture and buy other than it is to remove it, especially if the moving is caused by a rise of fortune. I do not attempt to explain it but there is a certain quality in men who have taken root, who have lived with the same furniture, the same house, the same friends, for many years, which you shall look for in vain in men who have travelled the world over and met hundreds of acquaintances. For you do not know a man by meeting him at a hotel, any more than you know a house by calling at it, or know a garden by walking along its paths. The knowledge of human nature of the man who has taken root may be narrow, but it will be deep. The unrooted man who lives in hotels and changes his familiars with his houses will have a shallow familiarity with the veneer of acquaintances. He will not have learned to weigh and balance the inner worth of a friend. In the same way I take it that a constant succession of new clothes is irritating and unsettling, especially to women. It fritters away the attention and exacerbates their natural frivolity. In other days, when clothes were expensive, women bought few clothes, but those clothes were meant to last, and they did last. A silk dress often outlived the natural life of its first wearer. 
the knowledge that the question of dress will not be one to be almost weakly settled, tends to calm the nerves and consolidate the character. Clothes are very cheap now, therefore women buy many new dresses, and throw the shoddy things away when, as they soon do, they grow shabby. Men are far more sensible. Every man knows the appeal of an old coat. So long as women are insensible to the appeal of an old gown, they need never hope to be considered, in stability of character, the equals of men. The passion for ornaments, not ornament, is another of the unsettling factors in an unsettling age. The very existence of the fancy shop is not only a menace to, but an attack on the quiet dignity in the home. The hundreds of ugly, twisted, bizarre fancy articles which replace the old few serious ornaments, are all so many tokens of the spirit of unrest which is born of, and in turn bears, our modern civilization. It is not, alas, presently possible for us as a nation to return to that calmer, more dignified state, when the lives of men were rooted in their individual possessions, possessions adorned with memories of the past, and cherished as legacies to the future but I wish I could persuade women to buy good gowns, and grow fond of them, to buy good chairs and tables, and to refrain from the orgy of the fancy-shop. So much of life, of thought, of energy, of temper, is taken up with the continual change of dress, house, furniture, ornaments. Such a constant twittering of nerves goes on about all these things which do not matter. And the children, seeing their mother's gnat-like restlessness, themselves in turn seek change, not of ideas or of adjustments, but of possessions. Consider the acres of rubbish specially designed for children, and spread out over the counters of countless toy-shops. Trivial, unsatisfying things, the fruit of a perverse and intense commercial ingenuity, things made to sell and not to use. When the child's birthday comes, relations send him presents, give him presents, and his nursery is littered with a fresh array of undesirable imbecilities, to make way for which the last harvest of the same empty husks is thrust aside in the bottom of the toy-cupboard. And in a few days most of the flimsy stuff is broken, and the child is weary to death of it all. If he has any real toys, he will leave the glittering trash for nurse to put away, and go back to those real toys. When I was a child, in the nursery we had—there were three of us—a large rocking-horse, a large doll's house, with a wooden box as annex, a Noah's Ark, dinner and tea-things, a great chest of oak bricks, and a pestle and mortar. I cannot remember any other toys that pleased us. Dolls came and went, but they were not toys, they were characters and now and then something of a clockwork nature strayed our way, to be broken up and disembowelled to meet the mechanical needs of the moment. I remember a desperate hour when I found that the walking doll from Paris had clockwork under her crinoline, and could not be comfortably taken to bed. I had a black and white china rabbit who was hard enough, in all conscience, but then he never pretended to be anything but a china rabbit, and I bought him with my own penny at Sandhurst Fair. He slept with me for seven or eight years, and when he was lost, with my play-box and the rest of its loved contents, on the journey from France to England, 
all the dignity of my thirteen years could not uphold me in that tragedy. It is a mistake to suppose that children are naturally fond of change. They love what they know. In strange places they suffer violently from homesickness, even when their loved nurse or mother is with them. They want to get back to the house they know, the toys they know, the books they know. And the loves of children for their toys, especially the ones they take to bed with them, should be scrupulously respected. Children nowadays have insanitary, dusty teddy bears. I had a rag doll, but she was stuffed with hair and was washed once a fortnight, after which nurse put in her features again with a quill pen, and consoled me for any change in her expression by explaining that she was growing up. My little son had a soapstone mouse, and has it still. The fewer toys a child has, the more he will value them, and it is important that a child should value his toys if he is to begin to get out of them their full value. If his choice of objects be limited, he will use his imagination and ingenuity in making the objects available serve the purposes of such plays as he has in hand. Also it is well to remember that the supplementing of a child's own toys by other things, lent for a time, has considerable educational value. The child will learn quite easily that the difference between his and yours is not a difference between the attainable and the unattainable, but between the constant possession and the occasional possession. He will also learn to take care of the things which are lent to him, and, if he sees that you respect his possessions, will respect yours all the more in that some of them are, now and then, for a time and, in a sense, his. The generosity of aunts, uncles, and relations generally should be kindly but firmly turned into useful channels. The purchase of fancy things should be sternly discouraged. With the rocking-horse, the bricks, the doll's house, the cart or wheelbarrow, the tea and dinner set, the Noah's Ark and the puzzle maps, the nursery will be rudimentarily equipped. The supplementary equipment can be added as it is needed not by the sporadic outbursts of unclish extravagance, but by well-considered and slow degrees, and by means in which the child participates. For we must never forget that the child loves, both in imagination and in fact, to create. All his dreams, his innocent pretendings and make-believes, will help his nature to unfold, and his hands in their clumsy efforts will help the dreams, which in turn will help the little hands. End of section 5